0: Hope you've had a great weekend so far. We're going to be in 2 Samuel, Second Samuel chapter 11, and then we'll go into chapter 12. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I hope you do. Go ahead and grab that and make your way there. And uh, great to be back here with you, opening up God's Word and preaching again. Uh, the uh, Last week I was here, but had just got back in from going to London and looking at uh, some church partners that we could go over and serve as they kind of reach that city. And while we were over there, we got to see a lot of just different things. Um, We got to have some fish and chips, right? That's like what you got to do when you're in London. Um, But I'll be honest, uh, when you're starting to put mushy mushy peas with that and put vinegar on top, like who puts vinegar as a condiment on top of food? Like That's what you like wash windows with, right? Like that's nasty. Um, And then we went to uh, Piccadilly Circus and got to see all of that, right? And if you're not familiar with that, it's the the biggest letdown circus that you ever get to. I mean, there's no animals there at all. I mean, you looked all the way around, and there's none of that. Um, but the thing that was the most memorable to me while we are over there is just looking around and seeing all these churches and knowing the history uh, that, that has happened, how God has used so many great men and women from uh, the UK for years uh, to impact not just there, but the world Um, Men like Charles Spurgeon and uh, John Owen and and, and many, many others. But as I'm looking at these churches and hearing the church history behind it all, um, it just reminds me of the, the statement that I've shared with you guys before, but one generation believes the gospel. And then the next generation assumes the gospel. And then the generation after that completely forgets the gospel. And in London right now, 11 million people, roughly, and uh, only 2% of them claim to be Christian. 2%. 18% of people claim to be Muslim. They say that Allah is Lord, right? And then more than half of the people there believe in no God whatsoever. And in my mind, that keeps running back again, that whole idea of one generation believes the gospel. You look at a couple... Year, a couple generations back, and these great, mighty men and women that God used to impact the world with great theology and great hymns. I mean, those prayers that we went through, those 40 days of prayer uh, leading up to Easter, was by Puritans from that area. And then to look at a city full of more than 11 million people and more than half of them don't believe in God at all. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. We need to make sure that we do not assume the gospel to the next generation. And we need to make sure that we're not forgetting the gospel ourselves. And so let us, as a church, be faithful to continue to pour into the next generation. Uh, if you have kids, do not assume your kids just because they're around church are already believers. Share the gospel with them. Tell them how God saved and transformed your life. May they, they hear that story so much they could tell it for you. May they know and believe the gospel. And if you are single and you're in this room, that doesn't mean that you're excused from pouring into the next generation. You can pray for the next generation. You can serve in our students or in our kids' ministry here. There are opportunities for you to pour into the next generation the good news of Jesus Christ so that we don't end up in the same place that London is in right now. Where we would look at the generation behind us where only 2% profess Christ as Lord So let's pray, let's share, let's be intentional with the gospel that God has entrusted to us so that the generation behind us can have the same hope and have the same joy and have the same freedom that we have in Christ. And that is what this passage that we're going to talk about today is all about. It's about the hope and the joy and the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, this passage is, is about David and Bathsheba. So we're going to talk about a lot of sin this morning. But, but hear me, hear my heart this morning, even before we read the passage of Scripture. The point of this message is not to shame you and to guilt you so you walk out of here feeling terrible. That's not what it's about. God desires to convict us in order to change us, to encourage us that we could have times of refreshing as we repent of our sins. So we're going to talk about sin? Absolutely. But hand in hand with that, we talk about our hope that we have in Jesus Christ and the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And that's what we celebrate even as we talk about our sin today and as we look at David's sin in this passage. So we'll start in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. And this is kind of three scenes that we find in this narrative in chapter 11 and chapter 12. So we're going to read a scene, unpack it a little bit, read a little bit more, and unpack it until we're done with our time today. So we'll start with the first five verses. And this is what the word of the Lord says, beginning in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel And they ravaged the Amorites and besieged Rabbah, but David, but David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. That he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And a woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Pray with me this morning. Lord, you are the God of forgiveness and restoration. And we confess that we are people of forgetfulness and rebellion. So Lord, in your mercy, would you help us to see who you are? And at the same time, would you help us to see who we are? God, may we understand this morning that you are better than any of the temptations that we face. God, would you give us wisdom to understand our own sinfulness so that we can flee from it and cling to you? Lord, open our ears this morning to hear. Soften our hearts to believe we ask. Now let me invite you to pray something similar to the Lord this morning. That God would open up your ears and soften your heart to receive his word this morning. Pray and ask him to do that right now. And then would you also pray for me as we look at a familiar passage from some, for some of us that God would help me to serve you well, I'd be useful to helping you look more like Christ today. Would you pray for me? Lord Jesus, you are the just and the justifier. You are the author and the finisher of our faith. We confess that we can do none of this without you, and so we look to you asking that you help us to understand your truth today and to live it out this week. It's in your name we pray, amen, amen. All right, so there's three different scenes that we're going to unpack. Two of them are around our sin, and the third is around our Savior. So the first is this, great sins start small and simple. Great sin starts small and simple. David's sin and our sins rarely start at the extreme. They start with one bad decision after another bad decision until we reach the dead end that we never wanted to go to in the first place. You see, David's great sin starts with laziness. It starts with laziness. In verse 1, it says, when kings went out to battle, David remained in Jerusalem. See, one of the king's primary jobs was to protect the people. The Amorites were a group of people who would continue to raid into Israel, and they would rob them and, and take their things from cities, and then retreat to their walled cities, And so when times of spring came, the the rain would stop, the roads would be better, there would be harvests um, that would start to kind of come up, and so there was something to eat for the people of Israel as they went to battle against the people who had been doing this guerrilla tactic over the, the months prior. And it says here that they would besiege a city, that means that they would literally go around the city and they would wait it out until the people surrendered in the city. They would kind of starve them out, make sure food couldn't come in and supplies and things like that. And so that's where God's people are. David has sent them there to besiege the city. Now David should be there with them. This is the, the king's job to be with his people and to help to protect his nation. And yet it says that he remained in Jerusalem. At a time where kings go forth, David sat. And we see his laziness as well in verse 2 because it says late one afternoon, he gets up from his couch, okay? Middle of the day, you'd have a little break because it was hot, right, in that culture and that time. So you would have a break that you would maybe take a nap during the, the middle of the day, and then you would wake up and you would go back at your work and you would work super late as things got cool and as dusk hit. Well, David takes his siesta during the middle of the day, but notice verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from the couch. David has lingered in leisure till late afternoon. It's not that David took like a 30-minute power nap and then he's up and he's working again. No, he has remained on his couch being lazy for hours until late afternoon. When we linger too long in our uh, laziness, we often are tended to lust. Some of us know this really well uh, during the season of COVID. When we had lockdowns, when we were trapped inside. There's sins that you were tempted to do that have never even been in your mind pre-COVID, right? But when you, when you were stuck inside and you had nothing to do and you had all this like, leisure time, you started to see your heart lust after things that you had never lusted after before. And this is where we find David, where he's leaning in to leisure and laziness, and his temptation is growing far and far greater in his life. His laziness doesn't just lead him just to sit, but it leads him to sin. In verse 3, as he sees all this happen, he sends people. And this is a verb that's really interesting throughout the entire chapter of chapter 11 and, and bleeding into chapter 12. See, David's tendency is to to laziness, and so he sends other people to do everything. He sends Joab to fight the battle that he should be at, and he actually sends his servants to go and get this woman. David is sending, and he's sitting, and he's doing nothing. Our conveniences can often become a great source of compromise. And that's what happened to David. That's what happened to David. I mean, his greatest fault, his greatest failure, started so small with laziness, and then it just continued to grow. Continued to grow. And it grew into curiosity. In verse 3, it says, He inquired about this woman that he saw. This curiosity. This curiosity is not a bad thing. Curiosity for us is not a bad times, but oftentimes our curiosity can lead us into temptation. We'll think things like, well, I just wanted to know a little bit more about his story or her story. Like he was telling me something really interesting, and so I wanted to know more about him or her there was just this article, and this article was interesting to me, so I just wanted to click on it and read just a little bit more of this article. I wanted to know, you know, who she was dating and, and what swimsuit she was wearing. Like, I just was really curious about those things, right? Wait, we don't need to know that stuff. Why? Why do you need to know all that information about that person? This curiosity is not a bad thing, but it can lead us to a bad destination if we're not careful. And the common misconception of this passage is that Bathsheba is, is bathing on the rooftop, and she's not. If you slow down and you read the text a little bit, she's not out in the public trying to tempt men. That's not what's happening. David is on the rooftop. He's the one that's walking around. He's the one that's looking out. And the king's palace would have set higher than everybody else's house. So he can look down into other people's courtyards, and he can see into other people's houses. And so he sees into this house house. In his laziness and his curiosity, his eyes start to wonder where they should not wonder. See, David is not maliciously on the roof looking for something sinful to do. He's just careless. He's careless with his eyes, and his carelessness allows his eyes to wonder where they shouldn't. And again, curiosity is not a bad thing. It is a gift from God. It is a precursor of invention, Curiosity is a good thing, but what the enemy loves to do is is to twist and distort our curiosity and to turn it into something destructive in our life. Curiosity is good. Just be careful not to indulge upon it in the wrong ways. Find something positive to do with your curiosity. Learn a new language so that you can maybe go to a country and share the gospel with somebody, right? Right? Learn how to play an instrument so you can be a part of our worship team and lead our church family in worship. Use your curiosity to learn something that is beneficial. And yet for many of us, for many of us, we fall into the same pit that David falls into. Our sins start so, so small with laziness or curiosity or maybe it's something different for you. But it starts so small and it grows to something big. I've heard people say, I never intended for this to happen. And you know what? I believe you. I believe you. You might not have intended for it to happen, but it does happen because you're careless or you don't guard your life. You see, look how quickly David moves from temptation to sin. See, temptation can go on for a while, but the act of sin can happen in an instant. It happens in one verse, in verse 4. Look, look, look how fast it happens. The build-up is slow, the act is fast. You get it all in this one verse in verse 4. He sent, she came, he lay, she returned. And what's so sad is if you read this and you look closely, David never even uses her name. He just calls her the woman. This is such a sad picture of David's heart. This is a man who, the previous four chapters, seems to do everything right for the Lord. I mean, he, he is faithful to the Lord in so many different ways. I encourage you to go back this week and see, time and time again, chapter and chapter again, month after month, David does what is right. And then here, temptation hits. And very quickly, he falls. He falls. Now, for some of us in this room or even watching online right now, you're maybe even starting to check out. You're dismissing the sermon because you're like, this is for somebody else. I would never, I would never do that. And so you've already checked out, you've already moved on. This is for somebody else. Somebody else needs to hear this about sin and temptation and leading in somebody into that depth, that sin starts small in their heart, yes, and grows really big, yeah, yeah, that's somebody else, it's not me. Let me just caution you that's what sin does, it starts small as just a denial, and this can't be me. I want you to think about David. If anyone could have said, This is not me, it's David. I mean, we looked just a few weeks ago. David could have killed Saul and taken the throne, but he doesn't. He patiently waits on the Lord. God, I patiently wait on you. I'll never rush ahead of you. I'll never do something sinful like this. The last four chapters as he does all these things right, God, look, week after week and month after month, I've done everything right. David wrote worship songs that we still sing today. He wrote books or chapters in the Bible that we have in the book of Psalms. If anyone could have said, this is not me, it could have easily have been David. I mean, David wrote the words in Psalm chapter 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will. You are my God. Your law is within my heart. And the very man who wrote those words is the man who does this act of sin right here. So what is this teaching us? What it's teaching us is that the sin seeds are in every single one of our hearts. Every one of us. And, and it doesn't just teach us this truth right here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is throughout the entire Bible. Do you realize that? The Bible is full of people that we would look at and say, no, no, that person would never sin. And they do some of the most atrocious acts of sin that you can imagine. I mean, think about it. The father of our faith, Abraham. Abraham. This is the guy who hears a God say, hey, I want you to go into the wilderness. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what you're doing. And Abraham's like, all right, I'll trust you, Lord. I'll take my whole family and we'll go out where we have no idea where we're going to find food or shelter. We will go for you. And that's massive faith. And then he struggles and he starts coming to, to Egypt for help. And every time he goes to Egypt, he lies saying that his wife is not his wife. It's his sister. He does it multiple times. He lies to protect himself instead of trusting in the Lord. This is Abraham, a great man of faith. Jacob is another father of our faith, and he's constantly scheming and lying. Moses, Moses who led God's people out of Egypt and out of slavery, doesn't get to go into the promised land, his very purpose, because he was disobedient to the Lord. Peter, Peter in the New Testament, he looks Jesus in the eye and says, these disciples... They will leave you. I will never leave you. These other guys, they'll forsake you. I won't do it. And in the matter of hours, hours, Peter forsakes Jesus three times. Denies him three times. Don't think that we are better than them. Look at this and realize that this small seed of sin could even be in our heart. That sin is crouching at our door, ready to pounce on us. As soon as we think we're not capable of doing something like this, this is the very moment when temptation will come our way. So a couple points of application for this. One is this, don't believe the lie that the seemingly small sins in your life are not a big deal. Don't believe that. David, as he looks back on his life, had to have thought, look at these little steps that I took that led to where I never wanted to be. There had to be a sense of deep regret in his life for what is going to come because of this sin in his life. Do not excuse sins in your life. like, it's not a big deal. Some of us will look at David's life and be like, this isn't a big deal. He just sent somebody else to handle what he should have been doing. This isn't a big deal. He just was a little lazy He was just a little curious in a place where he shouldn't have been. This isn't a big deal. But look where it will lead David. The second application for this point is don't believe the lie that that, that you are above great sins. Don't believe the lie that you would never do what David did. Be a student of your life. Study and examine the small things. Make sure you're You're not making compromises in your life where deep roots of sin spread. When you find it, when we find it, the sin in our lives, let us confess it, not try to hide it. Because, and this leads to the second point, when we try to conceal our sin and we try to hide our sin, sin multiplies. Sin multiplies. And we see this in the next scene, starting in verse 6. Grab your Bibles and Follow along with me again. It says, so David, after he's found out that his sin is probably coming to light because she is pregnant, David sent word to Joab. This is the the captain of his army. He said, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And Uriah Uriah came to him. David asked, how's Joab doing? And how are the people doing? how is the war going? Which is a really odd question to ask Uriah because Uriah is one of David's elite soldiers, one of the 30 elite soldiers in his army. If you go back and you look, Uriah would have been one of the men, and his dad, one of the men that were in the caves when David was running for his life. And he asked Uriah these questions about Joab and the people and the war. This is what you have messengers come to not your elite warriors. So he continues on in verse 8, David said to Uriah, go down to your house and Wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David Uriah did not go to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Well, how did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and his servants of the Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that they made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie down on his couch With the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set forth Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought, and Joab Some of the servants of David, along with the people, fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. Also died. See, David's sin starts so small and simple. And instead of confessing it and moving moving forward in forgiveness, now what's happening is he's trying to cover it up and conceal it. And anytime you try to cover up and conceal your sin, you have to cover it up with more sin, and more sin, and more sin. And that's what we're finding in David's life. He commits adultery, but it doesn't stop there. Now he tries to conceal it with more sin, more sin. And he tries to bring Uriah home from the battlefront to try to deceive him, to get him to sleep with his wife, to cover up David's sin. So that nobody will know, like... Yes, you had a child, and yes, he looks like the king, but that's okay, right? This is what he's doing, and this is leading him. It's multiplying the sin in his life. And what's interesting in this is Uriah. It says that Uriah slept at the door of the king's house. You see, David has a plan. He's got a good plan in his mind. This is going to make sure that nobody finds out about the sin in my life, that I can conceal it and hide it. I'm going to invite him home. I'm going to give him a present of food and drink, send him to his wife, and nobody will know the difference. <laughs> Plot twist. You rise like, nope, I'm not going home. I'm not going home. I'm going to honor my captain who's out on the battlefield. I'm going to honor my comrades that are out there in the battlefield. And I'm going to stay here at the king's house. And this is really going to bother David. And people like this really Bother us. You see, when we're in sin, there's nothing more annoying and unnerving than the integrity of others. It's just the reality of it. And Uriah has integrity at this time to honor both his family and his fellow soldiers. And so he sits there at the king's castle. Now, for those of us that are keeping tally, David's sin has compounded so much. He covets a man's wife, then he commits adultery with that man's wife. Remember, it doesn't stop there. He, ultimately, what we read, he will murder a man, and then he'll lie to cover it up. If you're doing your math right, he's breaking roughly half the Ten Commandments in this one instance Chapter 7 or verse 17 tells us that when Uriah was killed that some of the other men died with him. This is showing how sin multiplies and how it impacts others around us. When it says in verse 17 that some of the other servants fell, it shows that David's sin does not stop with himself. For us, those of us that think I've done it behind closed doors, it doesn't impact anybody else. Nobody else will know about it. I can continue to hide it and conceal it. You need to realize what this passage is telling you is that your sin will bleed into every area of your life. It will impact your kids. It will impact your friendships. It will impact your family. It will impact things. And right here, David's sin is coming down trying to kill one man. As wicked as that is, Uriah, but what we find in verse 17 is that there were other men that were there fighting as well and they died because of David's sin. Uriah didn't do anything wrong. These other servants didn't do anything wrong. But David has to conceal that sin and when he does that, when we do that, it just multiplies it. It just multiplies it. Now I know that many of us have concealed sin in our life. I have done it in the past, right? But I have never once found freedom and refreshment in concealing. Never once. And many of us have gone down this road of trying to conceal our sin. And we could say, I never wanted it to get here. I never meant for it to get here. David didn't mean for it to get here. This wasn't supposed to happen. So what are we supposed to do What is the application? What are we supposed to do when we see these temptations, when we find sin in our life? What are we supposed to do? Well, don't conceal it because it will only multiply. Confess it and kill it. John Owen, um, a British theologian from the 17th century, uh, he had a very morbid statement, um, but the more I thought about it, the more I love it and appreciate it. He said... Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And let me try to wed kind of point one and point two together as we think about this sin. Things start small, and they grow to something big. And if we can seal it, all it is is fertilizer to make it grow more and more. We have to be killing our sin, or it will be killing us do not believe that your pet's sin is small and insignificant. Instead, see, let us all see our sin for what it is. It's like an acorn. It's like an acorn. I mean, so small it can fit into the palm of your hand. And yet, that tiny, small acorn can grow into a massive, massive oak tree. Let me ask you this. Which is easier to crush and to kill? That small acorn or that giant tree? It is far easier to crush an acorn, to kill it when it's very small, than to allow it to grow and expand in your life as you're trying to conceal it. When you have to chop down and cut down that big oak tree, it is more difficult. So church family, let us look at our life, examine our life, And squash the acorn so we don't have to struggle to bring down the oak tree. For far too long I've talked to people that have struggled with sin over years and they want to get out of that sin in one day or one week or one month. It doesn't work that way. If it took years for you to grow that habit in your life, it may take years to get you out of that habit. So let's examine our life to make sure that we look at those small, seemingly pet sins and crush them now so they don't grow into that giant oak tree of sin in our hearts and in our lives. Let's be killing sin or it will be killing us. Now, some of you might be saying, well, Ryan, uh, this is great. I wish I would have known about this like five years ago, right? Right? I wish I would have realized these truths five years ago. Maybe I could start implementing this stuff now, but, but what about all those sins? What about all those things that I, that I did wrong? Like What do I do with those things now, those, those things that are now trees in my life? What do we do? Well, we find out in the last scene that we're going to look at, and it's in chapter 12. I want us to read seven verses or eight verses in chapter 12. All of this has happened. God notices it in the end of verse 27. God says, it Pleased him, It displeased him what David had done. Seems like David's getting away with it, but it displeased God. God's not going to let it go by. So what does God do in verse 1 of chapter 12? So the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and he said, There were two men of a certain city, one rich and one poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. He used to eat a morsel and drink from his cup and then lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to visit the rich man. The rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock of the herd to prepare for the guest who had come to see him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he must restore the lamb fourfold because of this thing he did, because he had no pity. Verse 7 Nathan said to David, You are the man. You're that man. Now look down to verse 13 chapter 12, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. You shall not die. See, what we find in this third scene is that when sin is forsaken, we find forgiveness. Forgiveness. Our temptation is to conceal, but that's not where we're going to find forgiveness. That's not where we're going to find freedom. See, the Lord sends Nathan to David, and this isn't an odd, weird moment. It's not. Because different people would come into the king's court and would present court cases. And Nathan, being a prophet, would hear a lot of the injustices that were going on in the city and in the area. And so many times Nathan would come and visit David, and one of David's jobs, not just to protect the people, was to actually judge the people. And, and, and to do court cases. And so Nathan comes in and he presents this court case to David. There's this rich man, has all these different things. There's a poor man, he has only one lamb. And what we find is the rich man steals from the poor man and kills his lamb. And David is furious by this. He has no pity. He has no compassion. This man deserves to die. He deserves to die. And David is not wrong. What David is confessing right here is a New Testament truth. The New Testament will confirm that the the wages of our sin is death. And yet, David doesn't die for this sin. He just finally realizes it and stops trying to conceal his sin and starts confessing his sin. Verse 13, it tells us David just says, I have sinned against the Lord. I love, love this short verse in verse 13. Because David does not come in trying to justify his sins. He doesn't come to to Nathan and say, Nathan, I heard what you said, and I know it was really hard at first. But here's five reasons why I did it, and I was just trying to, you know, kind of cover some things up so it wouldn't be so bad. He doesn't give a list of excuses. He doesn't point fingers at others. He doesn't say, well, it's Bathsheba's fault. It's all her fault. If she wasn't so beautiful, I never would have stumbled into this. It's her fault, right? That's what Adam did in the garden, right? That's not what he does. He doesn't even own it and then excuse it of, well, it's, it's, it really wasn't that bad because I'm the king. Right? I, I make the rules, and if I make the rules, then, then I'll just you know bend them a little bit. That's not what David does. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And if you want to understand more of what this confession that David prays looks like, then go read in the book of Psalms, Psalm 51. This summer we're actually going to walk through and teach the whole chapter, but it's one of the most... Beautiful, overflowing passages of repentance that you ever read to guide your heart and your life as you look at the sin. But David doesn't excuse, he doesn't justify, he confesses and owns it. And let me just say one thing with this just as a parent, one of the things fascinating we listen to this podcast, Raising Girls and Boys. It's a great podcast, and it talks about uh, kids and even their, their struggle with sin. And one of the things I found to be so true, they say in there that boys love to blame others for their mistakes. And girls love to blame themselves. And what I found with two boys is they will blame each other for every single thing that goes wrong. Mistakes they made, it's somebody else's fault, right? So I can't speak to all the ladies in the room, but I just want to speak to the men to say, do not blame others for your sins. That's what you're going to be tempted to do, to pass the buck just like I see in my kids' hearts in life, I find in my own. So just caution you, do not excuse it. Don't excuse it. Own it. Just like David did. Own and confess your sin before the Lord and find forgiveness. Now, some of you, you were really, really bothered by verse 13. You're really bothered. Because you're like, wait a second. David did all of these things. He broke more than half the Ten Commandments. And, and now it's just, oh, everything's okay? You're not going to die for these sins? What? Like some of you are so bothered by verse 13 because you're like, this seems like there's injustice going on. How could David do all of these things wrong and then, then, then just be excused? <laughs> Which I find a little funny because a lot of times we read the Old Testament we're like, man, God, he judges so much. Like he's such a judgmental God. And in the New Testament, he's such a God of love. But what do we find right here? God pours out his love and his mercy and it bothers us. That David could commit all of these sins and yet it seems like God is unjust. It seems like God just kind of passed over. How dare he do that? How dare God let David get away with all these things? Well, let me speak to that. David doesn't get away with anything. There is death. You can actually, for the next two or three chapters, you can read and circle in the life of David all the death that David's going to see, both physically and spiritually. Death comes to his house over and over and over and over again. He loses kids, grown-up kids that rebelled against him. Like There's a lot of death that comes from this. See, there's a consequence for, for his sin. But David doesn't personally have to die for his sin. And we might get bothered by this. We might get bothered that there's mercy in someone else's life until we need that kind of mercy. It seems a little too easy for David, but, but it sounds like a little bit of hope for us. A little bit of hope that this mercy might count for me. And it can count for you. See, in verse 13, God is not sweeping David's sins under the rug. It says, Nathan says, that God has put away your sin. Put away. God does not just pass over the sin. He looks at it and says it's a big deal. And that word for for put away is, is literally where we get the word Passover from. Passover. God has passed over his sin just like taking their minds back to Passover where the angel of death came in and the people should have died. Why didn't they die? Because a lamb was slain in their place and the blood was put above the doorpost. The lamb died so the people didn't. As Nathan spoke these words to David, it should remind him of the Passover lamb that was slain in his place. You see, Paul struggled with this truth as well. How can God look at the sin of the Old Testament and seemingly pass over it? And in Romans chapter 3, he says this. He says, no, God is both the just and the And the justifier. How did he do that? Because Christ, the Lamb of God, came and took on the sin of the world so that whoever would believe could be forgiven. Whoever would confess and forsake that sin could have life and life everlasting. You see, sin will be paid for. It will be paid for by you and an eternity of hell and separation from God, or it can be paid by that beautiful Lamb on the cross who died in our place. That is how God can be both just And the justifier. This is who our God is. So quickly, the application I would be for us is this. Let us confess our sins before the Lord and find forgiveness. Let us come to the Lord and let him put away our sins that we cannot cover up, that we cannot conceal. Let us own our sins and give it to the one who died to remove them. Pray with me. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your truth this morning, that our sin is great, but your mercy is greater. Lord, we believe the truth that there is no sin that is too small that does not deserve damnation. (laughs) But Lord, we also confess and praise you that there is no sin so great that can bring about damnation for those who truly repent. And so, Lord, what we do is we confess our sins to you today. For some of us, maybe for the very first time, this is what it means to trust in God as your Savior. This is what it means to find forgiveness and grace. This is the the hope and the joy that I was talking about at the very beginning. God will convict us, but it's in order to bring us comforts that we can be forgiven and refreshed. And so we confess our sins just like we did earlier in the service. Some of us maybe try to conceal those or excuse those. Lord, we just openly confess those now. Forgive us. And Lord, give us the courage this week to confess our sins to one another so that we can pray for one another that we wouldn't fall into temptation. God, bring the Nathans into our lives so that we would know the sin and repent of our sin. But oh Lord, Bring your great mercy and your great grace. Because apart from you, we can have no forgiveness. Lord, we need you. We desperately need you right now. And it's in your pure and holy, forgiving name we pray. Amen.